Hi, everyone. This is Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I'm a cis, white, gay man and a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining me today is Moni Ruiz Velasco. Um, Moni, thank you so much for joining us. Would you mind introducing yourself, what you do, and your pronouns, please? Yeah, sure. Moni Ruiz Velasco, I thank you for having me. I'm so excited yeah. to be here. Uh, I My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the deputy director at Equality Illinois. Equality Illinois. So uh, for those that are unaware, what does Equality Illinois do? Yeah, so Equality Illinois is an LGBTQ civil rights organization here in the state of Illinois. We've been around for over 30 years, and we work um, to advocate for laws and policies to improve the lives of LGBTQ people here in Illinois. Gotcha. Yeah, so not not super dissimilar to what we do here at Howard Brown. So uh, wonderful to have you in. And we asked you to kind of tackle a big topic with us today, and that is uh, Roe v. Wade, more specifically the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. So this is this episode is a challenge because I, in kind of conceiving of this episode, there's so many different directions and that so many areas that this decision can impact. Um, and, and so I, I kind of just want to run through a Roe v. Wade 101 first, and then we'll dive into more specific issues. So uh, what does uh, Roe v. Wade, wh- why, why does it matter to queer people? Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of people often think of Roe v. Wade as it's about it's only about abortion. Right. And obviously abortion is an issue that connects, um, you know, that impacts LGBTQ people deeply. But it's so much more than just about abortion. Um, it's really about privacy. It's about bodily autonomy. Um, that's ultimately the, the fundamental um challenge uh, with restricting, uh, you know, bodily autonomy through these decisions in Roe v. Wade. So Roe v. Wade originally uh, allowed for or legalized abortion across the country before Roe v. Wade in 1973. It was a state by state decision. So some states did not allow for people to have abortions. Others did. Um, And obviously, you know, these kinds of laws don't stop abortions. They only stop safe abortions. Right. And so I think that that's always important to remember. Um, and um, after, you know, 1973, when the Supreme Court found that there was a fundamental right uh, grounded in the Constitution's 14th Amendment right to privacy uh, for people to have bodily autonomy and through that have a right to abortion, uh, from that stemmed many other rights that impact our communities um, that, you know, we can get more in depth. But I think one of the the things that's, that's really important um, and, you know, I think something that's very shocking given the Dobbs decision, which is the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade um, recently, is that it's the first time in the Supreme Court's history that a fundamental right has been taken away. And it's obviously something just in in the right to abortion alone, that impacts more than half of the people in this country. Yeah, there's. It, it's interesting the like um, disregard for precedent. That's something I've heard going around. Is that uh, a lot of the more recent issues, the Supreme Court, the justices had said that they would respect established precedent, and then uh, did not. Um, this might be a, a tangent, but I had heard. Uh, that it kind of calls into question the validity of the court if they're willing to overturn precedent and settled cases. Um, do you agree with that statement? Should we be concerned that 
this kind of potential um, disregard for settled case law is going to continue? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, many scholars and, you know, people think that this disregard for precedent is going to continue. And not just that, the Supreme Court actually said it in their opinion, Mm. as well as in the concurring opinions that were issued with the uh, main Dobbs decision. I think whether the Supreme Court is, um, you know, valid or not, I think, you know, oftentimes it's hard to have those systemic changes um, that provide for more equitable solutions for our society Mm -hmm. as things change and evolve, right? And I think that the fact that even in this Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court relied on laws uh, from the 1400s, you know, incited to things um, that obviously existed, you know, centuries ago, yeah. uh, you know, should make people question, like, is this the right direction to go in? Uh, you know, should we um, question and change and look for solutions that are, are better and that are more representative of a democratic system and a democratically elected government. And unfortunately, I think a lot of, um, you know, where we are today with the Supreme Court, the way it is today, um, you know, it's it's very reasonable, I think, for people to question the legitimacy of the court, given, yeah. given who's at, in the court. <sighs> I, my head is spinning kind of con- like thinking about all of this because, uh, like I said, there's so many potential, like, ramifications and like results of this decision and uh i know there's been a lot of discourse about this decision in that different subsets of the queer community are alarmed because they're saying you know we're next our rights are next etc but there's uh you know also the other half that says well we should be concerned for what was immediately taken away what what is happening right now which Mm -hmm. is the right for you know safe abortion, safe and legal abortions in this country. Um, how do you, how do you balance concern for what's coming and concern for what's happening right now, uh, without doing one or the other disservice? Cause that's a, a discourse I keep seeing online is like, don't look, you know, five years down the line, this is real for people right now. And we need to be concerned right now. How do you balance both of those? Yeah. I mean, I think we can do more than one thing at a time. So I think we're definitely very capable of that as a movement, as a community, you Mm -hmm. know, obviously, um, you know, we have to take care of both things, right? Because a lot of the undoing of our rights, um, including the right to an abortion, has been something that has been built by right-wing extremists for for decades. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, they are definitely on the other side, not just thinking of today. They're thinking of uh, today and tomorrow and 10 years and 20 and 50 years from now. And we need to at least do the same, if not more. And so I think that it is important um, to be responsive in our, uh, you know, in our actions, but also have a proactive agenda and have, you know, and, and it is important for us to set our own agenda for our own community, right? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent perspective that, like, they're playing the long game and they have this mapped out, so we can't do ourselves a disservice by focusing on the here and now. We have to do both. Um, and it, it is we are capable of doing both, which mm-hmm. I think is an excellent point. So... The right to privacy, I, I, and I am, I said before we started recording, I asked the dumb questions and I'm like, I serve as the layman here. I have zero legal knowledge. <laughs> the right to privacy means essentially that, I'm going to try to put this in my own words, that the government 
can't like come into our homes and tell us what to do with our private time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think like, essentially that's exactly what it means. It means that we have certain um, level, we have we have uh, autonomy and decision-making over our own bodies, over what happens in our homes, over the way we live our lives. Um, and it's grounded in liberty protections and that right to liberty uh, that was put into the Constitution. Gotcha. So uh, the emphasis being on right to privacy as it pertains to our own bodies. Obviously, we like there are laws about what you can and can't do with another person uh in terms of like murder and like things like that like right. obviously there are laws as that pertains to that but like in general we have autonomy over our own body or so we did like with the right to privacy right that's how i am conceptualizing that Does yeah that okay. i think that's right okay um so with this being overturned the right to privacy the government's basically saying you, you don't actually anymore, or in this case, uh, as it pertains to abortion, the government does have the right to intercede, or at least states have the right to intercede and make laws uh, regarding abortion. Yeah, so what the Supreme Court's finding does is that it basically says there is no, um, there is no kind of national, you know, there's no protection countrywide, but it's up to the states gotcha. to decide how they regulate. And, and they grounded it in the basically valuing the interests of the pregnancy more than the interests of the person, right, carrying mm -hmm. the pregnancy. So mm -hmm. they were saying, you know, it's not just about your own body. Um, it's about, it's some, it's more than that. Um, and obviously again, it goes against precedent that has existed in the law for 50 years almost. So it is a new, um, it is, it is, it is new in that they took away these rights and it is new in that, um, you know, they're basically allowing the government as we've seen already, you know, and it's going to be across the country and over half the States mm -hmm. going to restrict what people who can get pregnant can and can't do. Um, and there's even discussion, you know, I think one of the headlines that most alarmed me was uh, there was a headline in the New York Times that talked about whether people who could get pregnant um, could be stopped from crossing state lines, you know, and the fact that we yeah. have that headline and that I had to read that in the, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, it's alarming, right? To think that there could be, restrictions at that level for yeah. for people in this country. Yeah, it raises a lot of questions, a lot of like comparisons to Handmaid's Tale and things where, you know, the the birth of a child is like put on this pedestal of like paramount importance when there's so much more to focus on. Um I I'm curious what other what rights do uh does the population have or the queer population specifically have as a result of the right to privacy that we might not be considering or thinking about yeah i mean a lot of our other uh, protections that have come since 1973 have been based on the right to privacy so previously for example um you know there was criminalization of same-sex relationships um, and that was based out of a Lawrence, a case called Lawrence mm -hmm. uh, v. Texas, you know, out of Texas also. Um, it's and, always Texas. You know, as a, <laughs> as a native Texan, oh, right? no. <laughs> I feel terrible about that. But, uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, for example, mm -hmm. you know, could would open up the door to criminalize us just for yeah. who we are, for the relationships that we have. And in fact, the attorney general in Texas already said he's ready to defend those laws 
um, and to, you know, relitigate, to take them back up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, and I think one thing that's important is that we're not just raising these alarms kind of in a vacuum. These um, these points, these cases were actually cited in the concurring opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the concurring opinion is not the main opinion, but it is the it is just for folks who, right. who may not understand that. But it's written by someone who agreed with the majority decision, but then wants to add additional information mm-hmm. or context. And Justice Thomas um, wrote a concurring opinion where he specifically mentioned the Texas case, the Lawrence v. Texas case. He also specifically mentioned um, Obergefell, which gives us the right to marriage equality, um, saying that, you know, that and these were all based on the same exact part, you know, and provision Mm -hmm. of law in the Constitution. Um, He didn't mention interracial marriage, which is, you know, interesting because it is based on the same exact uh, provision. Uh, He is in an interracial marriage, so I don't know if that had something to do with it, but (laughs) that definitely was not something that he raised. But it also, he also raised issues regarding, for example, access to contraception, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is, again, all of these uh, protected rights have been, are based on the same 14th Amendment privacy protection. Um, The the sodomy Mm -hmm. laws that existed once upon a time fit into that same protection now with the right to privacy they are we're not allowed to credibilize same-sex uh mm-hmm. or same gender sexual relationships right that's right okay yeah. that's so texas case yeah yeah so there's there's so many rights that fit into that and you mentioned access to you know birth control or contraception um is that i it strikes me that like because it's one thing to prohibit abortions once somebody has become pregnant but it's also it's another thing i feel like to impede somebody's ability to prevent themselves from becoming pregnant does that make sense like it's it seems like a stretch is well it seems like a stretch because you know these are rights that we've had for a long time but they're based on the same arguments you know they're based on the fact that we have a right to privacy and to decide what to do with our own body so even though right now in this moment in history because we've had these rights and these protections for so long it seems like how could we possibly go that far um we can't possibly go that far because it's based on the same exact laws and basis um and findings from the Supreme Court. So I think another thing to remember back to the er earlier point about the Supreme Court and legitimacy is five of the last six Supreme Court justices have been put in in their positions by presidents who were not elected by the majority of votes in this country. So that in and of itself, you know, really, I think, puts into question how the what the majority of people support and want in this country is not necessarily what's being reflected both in Congress or in the, you know, in the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's, it goes back to those fundamental uh, kind of democratic principles that we sometimes um, have a hard time uh, imagining a different system, but yet yeah. our system, you know, is really failing us. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Like we, this is the way it's always been. And so we have trouble you know, picturing how to change it. That was kind of my next line of questioning is for, you know, this happened and we know more is about to happen. For somebody whose life could be impacted by this decision or possible subsequent decisions, where do we go from here? Because a lot of people have expressed exasperation with the fact that, you know, we voted. And even though, you know, in some cases, the candidate we voted for won, that doesn't necessarily mean that it impacts the court in any way. Uh, And so, you know, 
we can we can do our civic duty and it still might not mean anything so so what does that mean for uh, you know the voice of the individual in our government and how do we like reconcile the fact that it doesn't really feel like we have one yeah well i think you know we have to again look at the kind of current and then the long term right and voting is probably one of the most important things that we can do um and not just us voting uh, but getting our friends to vote getting our community to vote getting our neighbors or you know here in illinois but in other states as well Mm -hmm. because a lot of these things that we're seeing and these rights that are being taken away they can come back if congress takes action and you know again this is another kind of reflection of undemocratic principles that we have in our system but the fact that congress um and in the senate in particular we can't get bills out of the senate because we have the The filibuster filibuster that requires 60 votes even though it's it's only a procedural rule. It's not a constitu. It's not in the yeah. constitution. It's not a law. It's just a procedural rule for the Senate that they allow uh, for you know this basically procedure to block votes that you have to have sixty votes. Uh, even though the majority of people in this country want access to abortion, mm-hmm. the majority of people in this country you know support marriage equality. Uh, I mean, all of these things that we're talking about are supported by the majority of people in this country, and yet Congress is unable to enact anything because the Senate, um, you know, is is a blockage for all of the. In fact, they're considering a vote uh, today or tomorrow on a marriage on on a, on a bill to protect marriage equality. Mm. But, you know, it's likely to pass the House because they'll have the votes there. But it's, you know, very likely that, I mean, that will it will die with the filibuster in the Senate. Senate. And so, you know, the way to change that is to have more uh, pro-equality candidates in the Senate. Uh, And that means that, you know, we may have our two here, but each state gets two senators. And so we need to make sure that there are pro-equality senators elected. Mm-hmm. And so the way we do that is we activate, right? We vote for our, in our own elections, but we volunteer to go to Michigan. We volunteer to go to Wisconsin. There's a really important race yep. coming up in Wisconsin for the Senate. Uh, we volunteer to support candidates who are pro-equality at every level, right? Yeah. Starting with school boards, starting with, um, you know, state office, obviously like aldermanic, candidates you know at every level and make sure that we have you know strong pro-equality champions yeah I, that's a great point about you know local governments <clears throat> as well that can have a huge impact uh in a very i don't want to say like trickle up but the it, it, it spreads out farther than than what you think it would with mm-hmm. um local government i yeah it's it's it is so hard and i have trouble telling people to like be optimistic and vote because they you know some people would say like I did vote and you know yeah. they still can't do anything so I it's one of those you know it is our best option there's there's not as individual people not a ton to do I mean I'm keeping my I moved here from Michigan a year ago and I'm keeping my uh ID there as long as I can so that I can continue to vote uh in Michigan since it's a swing state um but I'm it, this this decision really does impact so many different areas. Um, and with with this decision, a lot of people are kind of trying to take preventative actions to yeah. uh, keep their lives the same, whether it's um, access to, to birth control or making sure that their marriage is recognized uh, in certain states or even you know, postponing plans to move to a different state uh, where they might not have as many rights, et cetera. Um, what are some ways that we can kind of insulate ourselves from potential change down the road, whatever your situation may be, whether it's access to birth control, access to reproductive health care, um, 
you know, same sex marriage, whatever it may be. How do we, how do we brace for what's coming? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, definitely having kind of state by state laws is really scary, right? Because you, you're, I mean, we're here really close to Indiana. So, mm-hmm. you know, even traveling through Indiana to get to somewhere else. So I can tell you what I do, for example, with my partner is that we have a folder where we keep our powers of attorney, we keep all of our documents. And when we travel, we take those with us because we don't know, you know, where, even, even if, even though the law right now still protects our relationship and, you know, all of that, that, you know, that this is how laws get challenged and get all the way up to the Supreme Court because Mm -hmm. somebody is going to, at some point, deny somebody the right to do something in one of these states. And then it'll, you know, there'll be litigation, it'll get challenged and it'll go up, up the court system. So I think, you know, making sure, um, you know, that we understand where those states are, where we have strong protections, right? Here in Illinois, Um, all of these different uh, protections that we were talking about, rights that we were talking about are enshrined in state law. Mm -hmm. But even those are vulnerable, right? Because we know that, um, for example, if the Illinois Supreme Court were to turn into a more conservative court, that could overturn some of the laws that, the way they interpret the Mm -hmm. laws that have been passed. Or, you know, were there to be a radical change in our general assembly here in the state or a different governor who wasn't uh, pro uh, pro-choice and pro-equality, that could go a different way. So I think, you know, that's what's always important for us to remember is that, um, and that's where we have to remain engaged and not be complacent yeah. and and um, disengaged because, because these things can flip with elections and elections are so important. So, um, so yeah, so I think, you know, ensuring that you take advantage of every law that the state has to recognize your family, to recognize your marriage, uh, your relationship, to make sure that you have documentation for that, um, you know, in a safe place and available so that when you need to access it, you know where it is and you don't have to then like scramble in that moment to get it. You know, if like your spouse were to be in a hospital somewhere else and they wouldn't want to give you access or something like that, you want to make sure you have those things readily available. Yeah. That's an excellent point of, uh, staying active and, and knowing the laws that pertain to you and what protections you have under them. What are there, are there resources online, um, or in person, I guess, uh, to kind of walk people through these, these rights and resources that they have? Uh, because like it, you know, I have a boyfriend, we're not married or anything, but, um, I wouldn't know where to begin to, to look under what, you know, city law, state law, allows me what protections in certain circumstances that, you know, the, the legal world is obviously incredibly dense and and hard to wade through. So where does somebody start if they want to kind of better themselves and and equip themselves with knowledge in this case? Yeah. I mean, Lambda Legal has some pretty good resources on their website. Um, I think if you look and they have some state by state resources, um, so that people understand their rights in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, Human Rights Campaign has some. You know, we Equality Illinois has some on their website. I don't know that there has been a concerted, um, like, these are all the things you need to do. And I think that is something maybe we need to think about, you know, as organizations that are doing this work, right, is how do we... Uh, prepare these. I can tell you my background before coming to Equality Illinois was doing immigrant justice Mm. and immigrant rights work. And that is exactly what we had for immigrant communities is like, this is a packet of documents you need to always have with you or that you need to have in case of a raid or an emergency. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where our community is right now too. You know, we are in this position of 
vulnerability and we need to make sure we um, are equipped with all the rights and protection so that we kind of regain control, right? And yeah. make sure that we are living life on our own terms. Absolutely. And I, I could hear some people saying like, oh, you know, that's that's overkill. That's too much to have. You know, we're not going to, they're not going to go that far, but it's better to have it and not need it than the reverse of that, where all of a sudden you're in a situation. Uh, I'm The fact that you brought up, you know, your spouse could be in, in the hospital um, uh, or, or partner or, or however, and medical powder of attorney, they could decide to deny you entry or, uh, you know, access to your loved one. Um, but yeah, I'm just fascinated with the, the concept of us having to take like legal precautions, uh, you know, creep people across the board to ensure that we'll be able to live our lives. I, I wrote on here also, I saw, I don't know if it was Texas and I don't want to lay blame on Texas, uh, unjustifiably, but somebody was possibly talking, talking about targeting like prep, um, that, yeah they view prep as contributing to immoral behavior. And so they, under the same privacy laws or right to, lack of right to privacy laws, I guess, uh, they might consider coming after prep. And I feel like that enters kind of a legal gray area because prep just, first off, prep is not just for queer people. It's for everybody to prevent the spread of HIV how could how could a lawmaker limit access to a drug that is potentially life-saving under like a moral justification? Is that possible? Like, is yeah. our government set up to do that? You know, I think a lot of things that we thought before weren't possible are we're seeing them yeah. that they've made them be possible. I think the fact that there were over 300 anti-trans and anti-bills, anti-gay bills introduced just this year alone across the country uh, shows us what can happen, right? Obviously, they didn't all think in this past, but many of them did. And we had some bills even here in Illinois that were introduced. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, again, it's part of this engagement and making sure that uh, we don't uh, become complacent and that we continue to remain engaged and vocal and active. I mean, you know, legislators can pass law to limit access to any of these things, right? And I think that then there's a process where things would get challenged mm. and then they would go up to the courts and then they would go up to the next level of courts and then they would eventually end up at the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, because of all the reasons that we started talking about, there is very little faith that the Supreme Court would you know, respect longstanding precedent yeah. uh, for many of these things. And that even though there are things like PrEP that obviously aren't just for queer folks, I think that you know, anything that is perceived to be that way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially in these states that are taking, you know, extreme measures to exclude us from, you know, um, all of the rights that we should have and that we do currently have, um, you know, all, any of these things could, could be possible. And I think as we, as a Supreme Court undoes these, um, you know, country level protections, national, you know, protections, we are going to see states take more and more actions, um, you know, in, at, at the state level to limit our rights and our access to health care and our access to civil right protections. And I think we're going to start seeing um, <clears throat> states also, you know, um, you know, deny recognition of legal documents and mm -hmm. things like that. So I think, you know, we, we need to definitely continue to pay attention to that and be aware. Yeah. 
Um, I'm reading a book called uh, Gay Bar by Jeremy Atherton Lynn, I think. And it's kind of a, uh, a history of uh, gay bars and queer gathering spaces from, uh, you know, back when windows had to be blacked out and there was, you know, gay bars, but they weren't allowed to, you know, there was laws that gay people could congregate, but not, um, you know, touch each other in any way. And, and so it just kind of chronicles the progress that we've made in terms of queer gathering spaces. And so it's uh, scary to think that we could be possibly like backsliding into a realm where, you know, certain quote unquote homosexual behavior is outlawed or things that quote unquote enable homosexual behavior could be outlawed. What, what bright spots are there? Is there hope or things to like encourage us uh, as we see rights being chipped away? Um, because I mean, we've, we've talked about taking steps to protect ourselves and what we need to do to vote and, and things like that. But is there any reason to believe this isn't like the worst timeline and that things can get better? Like, maybe that's a, a dumb question, but. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, things ebb and flow, right? So that doesn't mean that. I mean, I, I, I think that the bright spots are that we are a powerful community you know, we're organized mm -hmm. uh, and we need to be more organized and we can do better uh, because I think, you know, there has been some complacency uh, in the last few years, right? Feeling like yeah. we're good. You know, we want a lot of rights and protections. So I think that we know that we can get organized, that we can change not only the law, but that we've been able to change attitudes and, um, you know, ideas about our community, about our relationships and about our families. And so we, we know that we can do this and we have to continue doing it. Um, I think the key is not being complacent and being active. I think we have to be active at every, you know, in every part of our life because our rights are always under attack and they always have been mm -hmm. since way back when until today. And so, but we know we've made this progress and we can continue to move in that direction. And I think, you know, with both a defensive, a strong defensive strategy, but also a proactive strategy that expands our rights and that makes us more equal, um, you know, in law and in society, we can, you know, continue to move forward and not just, uh, you know, move backwards as, yeah. as it's feeling right now. Yeah. It's kind of that sentiment of like, we've done it before and we can do it again type of thing. Yeah. Uh, we were faced with this uh, adversity before and, and we've come out the other end stronger. And just because we're backsliding a little bit doesn't mean we can't turn things around again. So I like that sentiment. Um, a few little tangents here uh, as we kind of round out our time. I am curious, a lot of people... And I've, I see this talking point a lot from certain conservative people that the, the separation of church and state isn't, shouldn't be a thing. Can you just talk a little bit about how uh, it is indeed a thing and how government is best suited to run independent of religious influence? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because usually those same people are the ones who are kind of coming after us and our rights to privacy because they're saying it's not in the Constitution, mm -hmm. except separation of church and state is in the Constitution explicitly. In fact, that was, you know, a big part of the founding of this country by the people who colonized the Americas mm -hmm. uh, was that they wanted separation of church and state because of the oppression that uh, came from not having that separation. And so... You know, separation of church and state is something that is fundamental and is explicitly stated in the Constitution. Uh, and that it's, you know, again, what 
what we are seeing at the Supreme Court level is not, um, I think, grounded in our truly democratic principles. And I think that that's what's putting this into question, right? There was a recent case at the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court allowed a, a, um, a coach to pray oh, on yeah. the field. Mm-hmm. And so that started a lot of the conversation around the separation of church and state because it was a coach from a public school. And again, it overturned uh, laws that and protections that had been in place before. So I think, you know, again, we have to stay active, keep fighting, make sure we have the right people in office, because even though the Supreme Court is what it is right now, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court justices are put into place and are nominated by the president and put into place by the Senate. And so we just need to make sure that uh, pro-equality folks continue to be in those positions of power so that we can chip away at what at the damage that has been done over the years yeah, um, and continue to expand our protections. But yeah, I mean, I think as conservative folks make those arguments, I just, you know, it's again, it's, it's the hypocrisy of saying, well, you know, there, this, this particular right is not in the constitution, but we shouldn't have separation of church and state, which is like explicitly in the constitution. You know, it's just these arguments that don't make sense. I mean, Speaking as somebody that comes from a very religious background, uh, they're really good at cherry picking stuff and listening to certain things and not listening to other things. So um, while that argument should be enough, they're pretty good at just listening to what they want to. Um, I have like, that was number one on my list of like, not buzzwords, but topics related to this that I keep hearing a lot about and I want to be more informed about. Number two was packing the court. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I keep hearing people advocate for or advocate against, and I'm not sure entirely what it entails or what that means or how that happens. So give yeah. us a brief synopsis of what that means. Yeah. Well, the brief synopsis is that there's nothing in the Constitution that says how many Supreme Court justices we should have. Um, so that, that numbers can be, you know, expanded. And mm-hmm. that's with the, when people talk about packing the court, that's what they mean, that the president should decide that there should be additional Supreme Court justices. Is that a unilateral decision by the president that the president can just say like, surprise, there's four more. It's, it's, I mean, I would, I would not say it's unilateral, like president Biden's going to decide that, right. right. You know, or whatever. I think there'll be a, there would be a process and there would have to be some sort of, uh, but the president gets to make those decisions. Okay. So, um, you know, I think that there's obviously that's one possibility. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments about, well, if you add, you know, Supreme Court justices and the next party can come in and add, just add more and then it mm-hmm. never ends. I think also, you know, if you look at other countries with similar democratic structures, we're the only one that doesn't have term limits for Supreme Court justices. So there's a lot, I think there's different creative solutions. You know, the fact that we have you know, people who have been on the court for generations mm-hmm. who aren't necessarily always keeping up with the changes in society or who are appointed by one political party are an extremist yeah. and are taking these extreme, making these extreme decisions and have no term limits. They're going to be there until they die mm-hmm. is just undemocratic. I mean, I think, you know, they, the community has no voice in, in who, you know, is in the Supreme Court for any period of time. So I think there's, you know, potential different solutions of things that, you know, they need to consider for for those kinds of um, decisions that impact our, our democratic structures. Yeah. And that's an excellent point regarding term limits, because that's something uh, term limits and or age limits that people uh, are experiencing frustration with, even regarding presidential candidates and things like uh, I saw a tweet that was like, why is 
our fundamental human rights being decided by a group of like octogenarians that if they had a sip of McDonald's Sprite would go into cardiac arrest or something like something silly like that. But a lot of people do feel frustration with, you know, the fact that they seem a little out of touch with, with the, the pulse of the nation, I would say. So um, I think those are excellent talking points. And I think it's not just, you know, pack the court. It's let's have conversations about how we can make the Supreme court represent us better. So um I think that rounds out other talking points related to this that I was curious about. This, I feel like a little uh, frustrated because this is such a big topic and I know there's questions that I'm always that person. I'll go home and be in the shower tonight and be like, oh, I didn't ask about that or you know, I should have said this, et cetera, et cetera. So this is my blanket statement to everybody listening saying, I'm sure there's a topic that I forgot to talk about that is very important. And just because I forgot it doesn't mean it's not important, but this is just intended to, like I say in my intro, uh, further the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. So this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and there's always more to talk about. But with that in mind, Moni, what are some um, parting words, take home moral to the stories that we can uh, hand out to our listeners surrounding this, whether it's, you know, inspiration or words of caution or whatever it may be? What are what are we end on here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's OK to feel frustrated and I think it's OK to feel scared and sad and disillusioned. What we need to do with that is take action, right? We need to turn that frustration and that despair into action and into working collectively to make and we know because we've done it before that we can organize and we can make important changes that benefit our communities and the communities of our families and the people we love and so we just need to continue to engage and stay organized and you know we need to show up at the the voting but we also need to show up in the streets and we need to show up at the school board meetings and we need to show up you know, and really make sure our voices are heard and our families are seen and our identities are seen because that is how we make systemic long-term changes. And I think that even though there's a setback right now, I think it's important to remember that we are are visible in a way that we weren't Mm -hmm. when a lot of these changes were being considered. And that is really powerful. And that is something that we need to truly use to our advantage to make sure that the protections that we've had in place and more, um, you know, come our way. That's excellently said. If somebody wants to get involved with Equality Illinois or volunteering in any capacity, how do, how do they go about that? Yeah, there's lots of different ways, but people can go on our website at equalityillinois.org and there's lots of different ways to engage with us throughout the year awesome. and make sure your voices are heard. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put the links in the description of the episode in case anybody's interested. But I, the running joke on this show is that I tell every guest, well, we'll have to have you back because truly, genuinely, I have never run into a guest here that I'm like, well, that sums up that topic. Don't need to hear from you again. Like there's always more to talk about and dive into and learn from. So uh, I appreciate so much you giving us your time, uh, indulging my dumb questions and uh, stammering and lack of knowledge on the issue. Uh, I appreciate it so much. But um, with all that said, we'll have to have you back. So thanks Thank for your you. time. Thank you for having me. And that has been the end of episode surrounding the overturning of Roe v. Wade. If you're curious about anything we mentioned in the episode, you can click the link in the bio or go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.